Good morning. It's good to see you. Just remain standing for a moment. It's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, it's a joy. I appreciate so much Pastor Chad's words about our relationship and treasure that and treasure the relationship I get to have with you folks. While you're standing, let us turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And uh, they're going to put the text up on the screen. And I would like for us to read it together. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then verse 12. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Amen. You can be seated. As you read the story of the day of Pentecost, there are words that come up throughout the entire second chapter of Acts that give us some sense of the pathos of how Pentecost or how the Holy Spirit makes us feel and how we encounter the Holy Spirit. Words like they marveled or they were astonished or they were perplexed or they were in awe. All of those words give us some sense of what Pentecost Sunday is about and what it means to encounter the Holy Spirit. It's, it's something that we can't wrap our heads around. It's something that we, that we have encountered. It's something that we know, but sometimes we just need to step back. We just need to step back in awe and wonder of who God is and what God has done. Pentecost Sunday is celebrated as 50 days after Easter Sunday. The word penta is five, Pentecost. So it talks about 50 days. It refers to the 50 days after uh, Easter Sunday. It's associated with the giving of the law. In, in Exodus chapter 19, we find the, the writer of Exodus talking about God descending upon Mount Sinai as fire, thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and the very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled, trembled, being, being fearful about the presence of God, being overwhelmed in our bodies about the presence of God, trembling in our body in God's presence. Sinai was all in smoke because Yahweh descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like a smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently so that the people are trembling and even creation is trembling at the presence of God, at the, at the descent of the holy, holy fire of God. In fact, in the, in the times of Jesus, the day of Pentecost had began, came to be celebrated in three different occasions. There was a Pentecost of new grain, which was a wheat harvest. There was a barley harvest Pentecost. And then there was a new wine uh, where they were celebrating the harvest of the grapes, making for new wine. And that might be why we associate the drinking of wine or they associate the drinking of wine with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in, second, in, in Acts chapter 2 because it was associated with the the harvest of new wine. 
For me and for us, Pentecost is an important day in salvation history. It's just as important as Christmas. It's just as important as Good Friday. It's just as important as Easter Sunday. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the ultimate goal of God's redemptive purpose. And in the same way we sing and dance and rejoice at Christmas or on Easter Sunday, today is a day that we should be singing and dancing and rejoicing for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful day to celebrate, a wonderful day to be reminded of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will continue to do. Pentecost means that the day of the Lord has come and is coming. When they asked Peter, what does this mean? He began answering their question by quoting Joel chapter 2. In the last days I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. Peter's not the first one to make that connection. John the Baptist preached about the coming of the Christ and he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus, when he began his preaching, the kingdom of heaven is near. And here on the day of Pentecost, the kingdom of heaven has come. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament signifies the coming of God. A day when God intervenes in human history, intervenes in this present age. For the days of Joel, the day of the Lord was a famine that was provoked by uh, uh, the locusts that came and ate all of the veg vegetation in the land. And the people began to cry out to God because of their suffering and because of the judgment. It was a day of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, there are many days of the Lord. When the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, that was a day of the Lord. When the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple of Solomon, that was a day of the Lord. So there are many days of the Lord in salvation history, but they all point to that ultimate coming day of the Lord when Christ shall appear and God will reveal a new heaven and a new earth. So Pentecost is the beginning of the revelation of new creation. It anticipates the final day of the Lord. As we read Acts chapter 2, we also find that the Spirit fills the place, the Spirit fills the people, and the Spirit will fill all creation. Get this, the Spirit fills the place. What we need to understand is that God inhabits our space. God makes himself present, makes himself known in our space. And those sacred places, those sacred spaces become places where we can encounter the holiness of God. So we can say that God inhabits this space. God inhabits this space we're in today in a way that he doesn't inhabit Hamilton Place Mall. Because this space is sacred and this space is dedicated as holy. A few months ago, when we were having the revival at Lee University, the revival had been going on in the Stone Chapel for several days, and my office is just down the street. One morning, I decided I'd walk down there to see what was going on. So I left my office and started walking down the sidewalk, and I was praying. I have to admit, somewhat skeptical. 
I've been involved in Pentecostal church long enough to know that not everything that people says is of God is indeed of God. And sometimes we get a little over-enthused at things. So I really did not know what to expect. But So I was a little skeptical. But I was prayerful. Lord, do something for me. Do something in me. Let me encounter your spirit. And I was praying that prayer all the way down the sidewalk. And I got to the front of the stone chapel. I began to walk up the steps. And the last prayer I uttered was, God please surprise me. And I stepped up, the, walked up those steps and went through those double doors and sat on the back pew. And the moment my skin hit that back pew, I felt the presence of God that went bone deep. I felt the Holy Spirit of God come over me with a cleansing and a holiness and a power that I could not speak. I was overwhelmed. I was so overwhelmed I could not speak. I was so overwhelmed I could not move. I, suddenly I was aware that I was in a holy place. I could hear the sirens outside of, of ambulances going by, but it was like I was in a different world. The space that I was inhabiting was inhabited by the presence of God. And I sat there for about an hour weeping and praying to myself. And finally, when I felt that I could, I got up to go back to work. And I remember walking down the sidewalk praying, God, if that's what heaven is like, then I want to go there. God inhabits our spaces and our places. Several years ago, I was in Istanbul, Turkey. I made the journey, actually I was in Bulgaria and I, I realized how, where I was in proximity to Istanbul, about an eight hour drive away. So I told my host pastor I wanted to go to Istanbul, I wanted to visit the Hagia Sophia. The Hagia Sophia is a um, cathedral that was constructed in the 5th century and for a thousand years it was the center of Christianity. When the Muslims overcame the, the Christian government and, and, the, and, and established the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims turned the Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And several decades ago, they reverted it to a museum. And, and so I wanted to go be there. I wanted to go be there at the, at the cathedral where many of the church bishops had gathered and had worshipped and had preached. And so I walked in and I was overwhelmed at its grandeur and its majesty. I walked through that place all day praying and seeking God, just aware that I was in a holy place. It was a wonderful experience. A few years before that, I was going through something of a spiritual crisis, and I needed to hear from God. And so I began to backtrack some places that were important to me. And one of those places was a little church in Appling County, Georgia, what, near what they call Surrency, Georgia, the Zion Church of God. The Zion Church of God is my family's home church. My great-grandfather donated the land to build the church on it back in the 1920s. It's one of the oldest Church of God congregations in the world. I remember the stories of the Zion Church of God told by my grandparents and my great-aunts and my great-uncles. My dad talking about, my dad wasn't a great believer. He was kind of a skeptic and, and not by any stretch of the imagination a committed believer. But my dad testified to being a kid watching the saints shouting and dancing and speaking in tongues and reaching into the coal, the stove and grabbing hot coals and shouting, all sorts of manifestations like that. So all, during this time, I drove out to, out to Design Church and knocked on the parsonage door. I knew the pastor. 
and I asked him for the key of the church. I said, I just want to go pray. So he gave me the key and let me in. You could put three of the Zion churches of God in this, in this sanctuary right here. It's just a small little rectangular block church. But I walked into that church and I began to pray and I began to relive the memories and relive the stories of men and women being saved and sanctified and filled with the Spirit. And in that little block church, I encountered a holy space, a holy place. What I'm telling you is it doesn't matter if it's a cathedral like the Hagia Sophia or a little block church or even a brush harbor down some dirt road. When God's presence shows up, God makes that space sacred and God brings to us His presence there. Don't ever underestimate the power of a holy place to be filled with God's presence to redeem us and to transform us and to renew us. God filled the place. God filled the people. Pentecostalism, we like to say, is an embodied spirituality. Embodied spirituality means that we experience God in our physical being. The Holy Spirit fills this body of flesh. I am a spirit united with a body of flesh. And the Holy Spirit fills my spirit and my body of flesh. I feel it. I experience it. I respond to the Holy Spirit. Praise team is singing. I noticed their feet couldn't stay still. They were dancing. They were clapping. I looked around the congregation. Some of us were swaying. Some of us had our hands raised. It was a physical expression of encountering God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes to us and fills our bodies and fills our minds. And we respond physically to the presence of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit fills the place, the Holy Spirit fills the bodies, and the Holy Spirit will fill the cosmos. The prophets Isaiah and Habakkuk declared that the glory of the Lord would fill the heavens and the earth. And that's what we anticipate with the day of Pentecost. All of creation being filled with the glory of God. Pentecost comes with wonders and signs. A rushing mighty wind. The sound of a rushing mighty wind. We've heard that sound. Sometimes in March here in East Tennessee, the winds get to blowing. We hear the wind blow through the trees. The wind wants to blow our hat off because the wind wants to distract us or the wind wants to uh, blow us around. A good storm come up, we go out in the yard the next day, there are dead limbs everywhere, broken limbs and pine cones everywhere. Just a few years ago, back over here somewhere, we had a tornado go through that neighborhood. And I drove through there a few months ago, and the results of that tornado are still evident. A rushing, mighty wind. Several years ago when I was pastoring in Thomasville, Georgia on the weekend of St. Valentine's Day, an F5 tornado cut a path through Grady and Mitchell counties about 40 miles long. The next day I got in my car and drove that path. It was amazing the destruction of a mighty rushing wind. 
The Holy Spirit does not come as a gentle breeze. The Holy Spirit comes as a mighty rushing wind. In the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, the Spirit rushed upon Gideon. The Spirit rushed upon Samson. The Spirit rushed upon King Saul. And that's the imagery that Luke is borrowing and telling us the Pentecost story. That the Holy Spirit blows upon us. The Holy Spirit moves upon us. And the Holy Spirit makes us move. We're in the storm of the Spirit, the storm of the divine presence. And the storm of the divine presence reorients our lives and reorients us as the people of God. A rushing mighty wind. Fire. Flames of fire. All through the Bible, fire symbolizes the consuming presence of God. It was fire through a burning bush that Moses saw the revelation of God. It was fire that separated the armies of Pharaoh from the people of Israel as they crossed the Red Sea. It was fire that judged the lands of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is fire by the power of fire that God reveals himself to us. And the thing about fire is it can be hypnotizing. It can make us warm. But even in the coldest winter day, if we touch it, it burns us. God is an all-consuming fire that purifies us and purges us. Tongues. Inspired speech. Languages we don't understand. They all spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. Why tongues? The Spirit inspires us to speak boldly. Language and words means a lot to us today. We're living in a culture that sees power in language and words. So words become fluid. We don't know what words mean anymore. In this culture, we need to be able to speak the truth of God boldly and profoundly with our lips and our tongues and our hearts and our minds inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we can declare the message of Jesus Christ. Tongue signifies the unity of God's people. Different tongues, different ethnicities, different races, different cultures, but all glorifying God and acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ. John the Revelator in Revelation saw the people of God as various tribes and different tongues. The wonderful thing about heaven is not that we're all going to be speaking the same language. If your mother tongue is Spanish in heaven, you're going to speak Spanish. If it's Russian, you're going to speak Russian. If it's English, you're going to speak, speak English. But the wonder of heaven is that we'll all have all of the gifts of the Spirit. We'll all be able to understand, interpret, and translate all these various tongues. And the importance of that for us today is in, the, in our country and in the world with migration the way it is, you can encounter people from every continent just within a few miles. 
I'm a professor at the seminary, and we've got students at the seminary that speak various African dialects. They speak Spanish and Portuguese and English and French, all sorts of languages at the seminary. But we're all part of one church. We're all part of the kingdom of God. We're all glorifying God with our minds, glorifying God with our tongues, glorifying God with our bodies. So tongues becomes an important sign. The flames of fire fell upon the, upon the place, the upper room, and then they separated and distributed upon each one of those in the upper room. Two things here. First of all, the baptism of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit is a corporate event. It's for everybody. It's not just for the folks at the crossing, whether they know it or not. Down at the First Baptist Church, Pentecost is for them. And over at the Presbyterian Church, Pentecost is for them. It is a corporate event. It is the one spirit falling upon the one body of Christ. So we can talk about the church being spirit-filled, but the tongues separated and distributed upon each one. So not only is the baptism of the Spirit a corporate event, it's an individual event. God wants each and every individual in this house and each and every one of His people to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to speak the Word of God boldly, to speak in other tongues, to be changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. So tongues becomes an important sign of the presence of the Spirit. Several years ago, I was at Society for Pentecostal Studies Conference in Lakeland, Florida at Southeastern University. One of the speakers was Larry Christensen. Larry Christensen is a Lutheran pastor. He was him with Dennis Bennett, who was an Anglican pastor, or the founding apostles of the modern charismatic movement. It was with Larry Christensen, a Lutheran, and Dennis Bennett, an Episcopal, baptized in the Holy Spirit, that began that 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 Pentecostalism bridged the gap between the traditional Pentecostal churches and the mainline churches. Dennis Bennett and Larry Christensen both wrote books, both began speaking, and they began they, they were the impetus of this modern charismatic movement, where you now you have within Pentecostalism traditional and classical Pentecostals like us who are filled with the Spirit and speak with other tongues. But you can also have Roman Catholics who are filled with the Spirit and speak with other tongues. And Lutherans and Presbyterians and Mennonites and Baptists and Methodists filled with the Spirit and speak with other tongues. What bridged that gap was the experience and the ministry of Larry Christensen and Dennis Bennett. Well, Larry Christensen was about 90 years old when I heard him speak. And we were all in a room. And he began to share his testimony of being Spirit baptized and praying in the Spirit. And he did a wonderful job at presenting his, his paper and his testimony. And toward the end, with tears running down his cheek, he looked at a room full of Pentecostal scholars and pastors, and this is what he said. He said, if we lose tongues, we lose the movement. What I want you to understand is that it was a Lutheran pastor warning Pentecostals the importance of speaking in tongues as a sign of the Holy Spirit. 
In the 1960s, another Pentecostal denomination made the distinction and made the decision that they would not forbid speaking in tongues, but not encourage speaking in tongues. Within 10 years, that denomination had totally lost its Pentecostal roots. Speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost was a sign of the presence and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues in the history of the church has always been a sign of renewal movements. And speaking in tongues today continues to be a sign of men and women who are filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is God's pledge of a coming new heavens and a new earth. What God began at Pentecost... What God is doing now, God will fulfill in new creation. New creation is in our future. The kingdom of heaven is in our future. So the Holy Spirit comes to us from our future, comes to us from the new heavens and a new earth, comes to us from the eternal kingdom of God, and the Holy Spirit is pulling us into that future. The Holy Spirit is pulling us out of the corruption of this present age, out of the out of the corruption of this present age, out of the death of this present age, out of the evil of this present age. And the problem is, is we're so comfortable in this present age, we're kicking and screaming as the Holy Spirit is drawing us into God's eternal presence. So what do we need to do? We need to stop resisting the Spirit. We need to yield to the Holy Spirit. We need to let God do what God wants to do in our lives. Let God do what God wants to do in this world. Look, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But don't you ever forget that it is God that shakes the heavens and the earth. It is God that brings judgment to this present age. And when it's all over, what will, left, what will be left standing are only those things which could not be shaken by the power of God because they themselves were established by the power of God. So don't get upset when you see the world going crazy. Don't get upset when you think everyone's lost control. Don't get upset every time the heavens and the earth shake just be reminded that it's the hand of God that holds us and we're a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken somebody say glory in the house everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Peter said in 1st Peter chapter 2 that you were once not a people but now you are the people of God. What Peter is acknowledging is human division. He's acknowledging that we look different, that we have different languages, that we come from different cultures, different races, different ethnicities. That division in itself is the judgment of God. Go back to Genesis 11. God divides the nations by confusing the tongues. And ever since then... We've, there's been violence and war. There's been struggle. There's been oppression. Culture against culture, tribe against tribe, race against race. Pentecost is when God unites all of his people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation, from every race. And Peter says... We become a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into light. In other words, it's not law that unites us. It's not borders that unite us. It's not governing documents that unite us. It's not history that unites us. It is allegiance to Jesus Christ that unites us. It is calling Jesus Christ, bowing before him as King of kings and Lord of lords that unites us. The Lord, allegiance to Jesus Christ does something that the law cannot do. It does something the United States Constitution cannot do. It does something critical race theory cannot do. The allegiance to Jesus Christ unites us and makes us all the people of God. Even though we look differently and come from different places and have different cultures, we're all glorifying God in our various and diverse tongues. That is the miracle of Pentecost, where the, where the many people on the earth become the one people of God, the chosen family of God. And the glory of God will fill all of these people. The glory of God will rush over every continent. The glory of God will rush over every border. The glory of God will rush over every space and fill all the cosmos. In fact, the glory of God will fill the cosmos with the fire of the all-consuming God. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter Peter chapter 3, that it will be the intense heat and the fire that will move through and burn the elements of this present age, the all-consuming fire of God that will regenerate this present age and give us a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So the Holy Spirit comes to us on the day of Pentecost so that we can inherit an eternal kingdom and eternal world with no sin no corruption and no death Pentecost reveals the workings of a Trinitarian God in Acts chapter 2 verse 33 therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he Christ has poured out this which you both see and hear now, there's a group of Pentecostals. They call themselves Oneness Pentecostals, and they focus on Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And using that verse with some really bad hermeneutics, try to convince us that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and Jesus is the Holy Spirit. The amazing thing is apparently they don't read verse 33. Because in verse 33... We are revealed, it is revealed to us, Luke tells us that Jesus, Jesus Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus, the Christ, has poured out the Spirit, which is the promise of the Father. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, we discover that there is one God with one eternally divine will of one eternally divine substance who exists as three eternal divine persons. Now, I know that doesn't make sense, but the problem is, is somewhere down the road, we thought that you and I, who have finite minds, could understand an infinite God. God is all-knowing. God is everywhere present. God is all-powerful. God is so perfect that he never changes. If he could change, we would have to admit that he's, per that he's imperfect and needed to change. So God is all-knowing, 
God is all-powerful. God is everywhere present. God is perfect. I could go on and on. But what we need to understand is in all of that, God is too big for us to grasp. All we can do, in the words of Paul, is get a glimpse, a glimpse of his glory. All we can do is understand that the God who is too large, too beautiful, too majestic, too powerful, but that God loves us and that God wants to be, uh, wants to have us in his favor. That God wants to have us in his presence. An ancient theologian by the name of Irenaeus put it this way. He said, God the Father reaches out with the right hand of his son and the left hand of his spirit and with the right and left hand embraces humanity, brings humanity into this divine embrace and brings us into life with the eternal God. One ancient Christian theologian referred to God as Trinity as the anointer, the anointed one, and the anointing. Uh, Augustine referred to God as Trinity as the b divine beloved, uh, the divine lover, the Father, the Son is the beloved one, and the Spirit is the flame of love. The point is that they're all the same substance, all the same will, but they come to us in this revelation of this community, and God wants our community to be joined with His divine community. The fact that we focus on the coming of Jesus, Jesus is attested with miracles and wonders and signs. He is the enfleshed Son of God, and He comes to us in miracles. And when He comes to us in miracles and signs and wonders, what do we do? Peter said, you nailed Him to a cross. The cross says two things. First, the cross tells us something about us. The cross tells us that we're violent. The cross tells us that just like Adam and Eve ran from God in the Garden of Eden and rebelled from God against God in the Garden of Eden, when God came in the flesh, what did we do? We nailed him to a cross because our hearts and our imagination is violence. That's why violence covers the earth. And when God comes, what did we do? We, we commit an act of violence against him. So the cross first tells us that we are sinners. We are violent. But the cross tells us something else. The cross tells us that God loves us even in our most apostate form. Even as we're nailing his beloved son to the cross, God loves us. Even as we refuse to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ, God loves us. So the cross tells us that we're sinners, we're violent, we're evil. But it also tells us that God is loving and gracious and kind and merciful. We need the cross. And the exalted Christ mediates the Holy Spirit. Notice, the Spirit is encountered. And the Holy Spirit is neither invisible nor silent. The Holy Spirit is neither invisible nor silent. The Holy Spirit is seen and heard. Seen and heard. We encounter God physically. We encounter God in God's reality and in our reality. And the Holy Spirit transforms our affections. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, For the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So how do we define who the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is? Divine love. 
a baptism of divine love. And that baptism of divine love transforms our affections. Before we came to Christ, we loved this present world. Before we came to Christ, we followed after our lust and after our passions. Before we came to Christ, we thought that the world made sense to us. But suddenly we come to Christ and we're filled with the Holy Spirit and suddenly the world doesn't make sense anymore. The world looks crazy and the world is crazy. We come to, we come to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit transforms our passions. No longer are we in love with this present world. No longer are we in love with love or money or sex. No longer are we in love with, with uh, our, our own selves and the boastful pride of life but now we're in love with the kingdom of God and those passions and that love we're pursuing the passion of the kingdom of God and we're pursuing the presence of the kingdom of God the Holy Spirit transforms our affections and our emotions the Holy Spirit also empowers our vocation in second first Corinthians chapter 12 Paul tells us that God gives us through the Spirit various gifts, varieties of gifts in the same Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit is what is profitable for the church. A word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a word of, uh, 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 the, the word of faith, gifts of healing, workings of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, all kinds of tongues, and the, and the other's translation of tongues. In other words, God empowers our vocation, gives us these spiritual gifts so that we can be empowered to do the ministry of Christ in these spiritual gifts. Now, we've been, we've been told by some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that these spiritual gifts aren't important. We've been told by some of our brothers and sisters in Christ that these spiritual gifts and signs were, were, are no longer important to us, that we, that we should not seek them or we should not pursue them. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Paul said, Pursue love, but earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Pursue love, but earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now notice the connection here with love and the spiritual gifts. Let's go back to something I said earlier. Love speaks to the passion we have for God. Love speaks to the passion we have for the kingdom. Love speaks to the passion we have for the holiness of God, for the power of God, for the grace of God. And that love compels us to desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. There's nothing more powerful in our lives than the desire to be loved. And we're all broken, and so we pursue love in various ways, and sometimes that pursuit of false forms of love just destroy us and break us even further. But the thing is, if we will pursue the love of God, it will always be transforming. It will always heal our brokenness. It will always give us strength in our weaknesses. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I'll give you an example. I collect old coins, have since I was a kid. I had this eight or nine, I've got more, but in this particular little collection I had, I had eight or nine old half dollars dating from the 1930s and 40s. They're called Walking Liberty Half Dollars. And they're not worth that much, 10 or 15 dollars a piece. But I was going through my collection one day and I realized I had lost those nine coins. I had them in a little folder somewhere and I couldn't find them. So guess what I started doing? I asked my wife, Sharon. Have you seen a little blue coin folder anywhere with half dollars in it? No. I said, well, I've lost it. I spent the next two weeks turning my house upside down. 
I moved out the couches and the chairs. I took the cushions off the chairs. I took everything out of the closet that the collection was stored in. I took everything out piece by piece and put it back piece by piece. I looked through magazine racks. I went everywhere. I even went places in the house where I never take any of my coins. I still haven't found those coins. I'm afraid what I did in one of my post-COVID moments with post-COVID fog is what I'm afraid of is that I laid that little blue folder on top of some magazines that I threw in the trash. May have. I've known to do stupid things like that before. But you know what? I haven't stopped looking for those coins. I was walking through the house yesterday. My wife's in Georgia attending a family funeral. So I was by myself and I was walking through the house yesterday pulling up those same cushions I pulled up two months ago. Looking under the same furniture I was looking under two months ago. You know why? I was seeking treasure. Seeking treasure. I was seeking something that had sentimental value to me. I was seeking something that had uh, monetary value to me. I was seeking something that had historical value to me. It was valuable to me. Not that much money, but still valuable to me. And that's the way we need to understand the spiritual gifts. And some of us have stopped seeking the fullness of the Spirit. We've stopped maturing in the spiritual gift. We've stopped nurturing the seeds of the spiritual gifts. Well, pastor, I just don't have that. Do you have the Holy Spirit present in you? If the Holy Spirit is in you, and especially if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, the seed of all the Spirit's gifts lie within you. They just need to be discovered and nurtured. And they need to be discovered and nurtured so that you can walk in the Spirit and you can be empowered in your vocation for the Spirit. We need to desire earnestly the spiritual gifts. The devil doesn't like a Spirit-filled church. The devil doesn't like, the world doesn't like, the world is bewildered by a spirit-filled church. The world is confused by a spirit-filled church. The world is scared of a spirit-filled church. That's why we need to be spirit-filled men and women, nurturing and seeking the spiritual gifts. And finally, the day of Pentecost means you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to Lay a little foundation here. Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is both the seal and promise of the Spirit. The seal and promise of the Spirit. Everyone who has confessed Jesus as Lord and has been born again has received the seal and promise, the seal and pledge of the Spirit. That term seal is important. It's the equivalent of us writing our name on something that we own. If you go to my library, my books, most of my books, you can turn on the first page, and you will see in the upper right-hand corner where I have stamped my name. I bought this stamp 35 years ago, and I still got it. I have stamped my name in those books. That, that is to remind you, if you borrow one of my books, it belongs to me, bring it back sometime. That's my book. That's my property. I purchased that book. That book belongs on my shelf. If I loan it to you, it needs to be returned to my shelf. That sign, that seal, is a reminder to you, that is Dan Tomberlin's book. The seal of the Holy Spirit given to us in water baptism is God writing His name your life. It's God writing His name on you. He treasures you. 
He values you. He owns you. He's going to protect you. That seal is the promise. Seal and pledge of the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit of promise means that there is something more than seal or pledge. That there is fullness. And in Ephesians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says, I pray that Christ will strengthen you in the inner man, that you will be filled up with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says we receive the Spirit as seal and pledge. In Ephesians chapter 3, those of us who have received the Spirit as seal and pledge will receive the fullness of the promise, be filled up with all the fullness of God. So you say, Pastor, I've got the Spirit. Yes, you do. If you're in Christ, the Spirit has given you, is given to you as a pledge and as a seal. But the pledge and the seal insist that God wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That God wants us to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That God wants us to walk in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, nurturing the Spirit in our lives, allowing the Spirit to transform us, fill us with divine love, fill us with divine power. Finally, promise is for you and your children. Again, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have tried to convince us that signs and wonders like speaking in tongues and miracles are for the apostolic age. It's called the doctrine of cessationism. The Holy Spirit no longer inspires the way the Holy Spirit did during the age of the apostles, they say. They say the Holy Spirit no longer moves or heals the way he did in the days of the apostles. All of these things that we talk about as signs and wonders are just mirages. They're just counterfeits because the true signs and wonders died with the last apostle. The amazing thing is that's not what Peter said. Peter said that this gift is for you and your children. I've got two sons and five grandkids. Every day I pray for my two sons, I pray for their two wives, and I pray for my my five grandkids. This is my prayer. God, give my children and grandchildren your favor today. God, deliver them from temptation and deliver them from all evil. And God, let them from their earliest age be filled with your Holy Spirit. God, let my grandchildren learn to walk in the power of your Spirit. God, let my grandchildren speak in other tongues. Let my grandchildren raise their hands in church and dance in the Spirit at church. God, let my grandchildren hear the call of God. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for our grandfathers and our grandmothers, our great-grandfathers, our great-grandmothers, going all the way back to Pentecost. And it's for every generation of human beings until that generation that sees the return of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, it's for you and your children. Let's stand.